Welcome to the Packet Pushers podcast, the data networking podcast that thinks a lot about the future of networking, because looking where you are going is just as important as where your feet are walking today. Today, I'm talking with Nick McCown, who needs a little introduction to those of you who've been paying attention. He has been involved in several advances in networking technology over the last two decades. In particular, Nick has been a key part of software-defined networking since the start, and he was even a co-founder of Nasira Networks, which, of course, became VMware NSX in full flight of SDN front and centre today. He is also, just for good measure, a full professor in computer science at Stanford University in Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah. Now, what we wanted to do is talk today about a project that you're working on called P4. So let's kick it off with what is P4? Well, P4 stands for Programming Protocol Independent Packet Processes. And that seemed a bit of a mouthful, so we abbreviated it P4. But let me tell you what it's about. You know, there's always been lots of interest in how you program the forwarding plane in this whole world of you know software control and, and being able to customize networks to meet our needs. There's always been an interest in how we can carry those ideas down to the forwarding plane. In the past, that proved very difficult. The technology just wasn't there to allow us to program the forwarding devices. And that was really just because of the line rates that were the, 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 the were uh, at which we have to process packets. There just wasn't the means to do that at the speeds that we expect in fast networks today. That's really changing, and um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about that over the next few minutes. But uh, that's you know really P4 is a language to let us uh, to let us program those forwarding planes. The last. 30 years of networking has been driven by speeds and feeds. We needed enough ports, we needed enough speed to go from 10, 100, 1 gig, 10 gig and so on. And that's really all we've been able to achieve in the silicon and our switches and our routers. That's really the limit of what we've been able to do. That's right. That's right. So the you know we've we've all heard of things like network processes and you know sort of the desire to to do this and you know some of the, the some of the switches and routers that you'll have seen on the market uh, allow a modicum of, of flexibility. We really wanted to sort of sweep away the old way of doing things mm. and allow for a you know an ecosystem that's a little bit more like graphics for GPUs and for digital signal processors where we're just used to defining the behavior we want in software and then compiling it down to run in a in a forwarding plane so that it processes packets in the way that we want it to. So when we say forwarding plane, we are talking about the ASIC inside a switch? It could be a switch ASIC that, that you would see, say, in a top-of-rack switch or in a wiring closet switch, but it also could be a hypervisor switch, so mm. something like OpenV switch that you'd see in a, in, in, in a server. Because if you think about what it's doing, it's just forwarding the packets between the VMs or between containers or between the outside world and the and the VM. So it's operating like a switch mm. as well. So you could think of it as just as a common way of expressing the forwarding behavior in any of these systems or devices. It could also actually be a you know something like an FPGA as well. Something that is not necessarily very high speed, but as um, you know allows it to be flexibly set up in order to be be able to process packets in a novel way that's uh, specific to a to an environment. So what we're talking about here is, I think, is a packet comes into a device, software switch, hardware switch, and in the normal course it comes in, uh, we read the Ethernet header, we read the IP header, we read the TCP header, we do some lookups on those functions inside of the the forwarding plane, software, That's ASIC, right. whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we put the packet back to it. We decide which port it's going to go out or where it's going to go inside the architecture of the device, stitch the packet back together, TCP header, IP header, Ethernet header, and then jam it out the other side. And that pathway is normally fixed, right? So I've never been able to change that in the past. 
That's right. You know, the history of networking has really been dictated by standards, and that's for good reason, because we need standards in order for different systems to be able to correctly communicate with each other. Um, and those standards uh, have allowed us to define and, and freeze that behavior into silicon in order to be able to get the highest performance. This this was uh, a very good way and an essential way to design systems over a very long a very long period. But when you actually stop and look at what these these switches and routers and gateways and firewalls are doing, they're all essentially doing pretty much the same kind of thing. As you say, packet comes in, look at a bunch of headers, figure out what, what fields you want to match on, perform some fairly basic operations and actions to decide where it's going to go next, and then send it send it on its way. And uh, so, you know, you could look at this in really two ways. One is, oh, it's only a simple set of operations, therefore we should freeze it in silicon. But in this kind of newer world, typified by data centers, you know, people want to add new things that are private to the behavior of their network. You know, mm-hmm. they want to add new new header formats. They want to be able to distinguish traffic in ways that are unique mm-hmm. to them. They don't necessarily need to follow standards anymore. Mm-hmm. So if we can allow a little bit of flexibility, then they can tailor the network to, to meet their needs. So if I look at recent history, we had um, the discussion around overlay networking in the data center. We had VXLAN. Uh, Microsoft wanted to come out with NVGRE because it was a format that it thought it was superior. Um, other vendors came out with their own proprietary overlay formats. I think even today, the NVO3 is still being ratified by the IETF. In reality, all of those overlay protocols and all the header formats that are described are functionally identical. They all do the same thing. But they had to, we had to wait three or four years for them to arrive in silicon before we could have that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at uh, VXLAN, you know, VXLAN was being developed by sort of the titans of the industry in the most important, highly inve- most invested in area, the, the fastest moving part of the industry. And it was fully described and defined in about 2009. It was four years before it showed up in silicon. And that really really reflects or typifies the, the problem here. Mm. In an area where there's a desire for change, the ability to distinguish traffic in a way that's unique to a to a particular data center, mm. it's very, very difficult to bring about that change. Now, there are changes going on in the underlying silicon, for sure. And, um, you know, we we were involved in my research group at Stanford in, in sort of exploring ways to, to, to do this. But the effort with the, with the language is really to provide a common way to express it. So we don't have to worry about, you know, a thousand different languages or firmware types in order to be able to define the behavior you want, looking for a common way to express these behaviors. So, for example, if you look at how long it took VXLAN to become available in silicon, if you think of it as a P4 program, it will take any reasonable programmer about four hours rather than four years to express that behavior. So wouldn't it be wonderful if there was an underlying yeah. uh, technology that would allow you to compile that down and, and then you're off and going? Okay, let's belabor the use case just a little bit more. Today, I can't change what happens in the silicon. It's completely fixed at time of manufacture. And years before the manufacture, the vendors have to agree on a format, and then it goes into the silicon design pipeline, and eventually it starts appearing in products. So if you've got existing fixed switches, you have to throw them away and get fresh ones. And in the case of chassis switches, you have to throw away all the line cards and the supervisors and the switching fabrics and get ones that support these new protocols. Not a very sustainable model for rapid change if you have to throw away your hardware every single day. That's right. Yeah. One could cynically say that, you know, the industry has sort of uh, has, has continued to uh, to like this, you know, churn the hardware model mm. in order to encourage <laughs> us all to go out and buy new networking gear every time we need a new feature. Yeah. In reality, it's because it's been difficult in the past to figure out 
out a common industry way that we could all agree upon for mm. allowing a little bit more flexibility. And the only thing that's been available to us is standards, and then standards define a specific behavior, and yeah, yeah that ends up in a pipeline. And the pipeline's long. It's you know, building Essex is hard, and vendors have to commit substantial funds to build those Essex. So the goal is to build. There's two parts to this. One is a language that we can hand to the Essex so that uh, the user can say, I want this packet processing function to happen. And the second part is a flexible pipeline. So before we get back to the language, can we build those flexible pipelines? Can we build ASICs that, you know, if up until the last 20 years, we've always just had fixed ASIC pipelines that the packet comes in and it goes bang, 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 you know, layer two, layer three, layer four, goes through the crossbar, gets quassed, you know, rewrite the quass tags and then out it goes. Are we able to build silicon that does that? It's a great question to ask. You know, I, I remember when I was first learning about um, signal processing and graphics, the debate was railing in the in, in those communities about whether it was possible to, to design programmable graphics devices instead of having the fixed function graphics cards that we all remember from companies like Sun and Silicon Graphics. And then what happened was a few folks figured out that there were some common operations, some common primitive operations that you needed in order to be able to express a variety of different rendering and graphics applications. And when that light bulb went off, they were able to define specialized programmable forwarding pipelines, that, uh, sorry, pipelines that would allow for a variety of different rendering and graphics algorithms to be designed. And really the same thing has happened in networking in the last 10 years. It's really emerged the that there are a set of primitive operations that all fit into this match plus action paradigm. And if you think about it, what a what a forwarding device is doing, whether it's processing at layer two, layer three, layer four, it's matching upon fields and then performing a set of operations. Mm. It's looking up into an address, looking up an address, deciding where it sends it next, picking a port number, decrementing mm. a field, updating a checksum. So there's a very simple set of actions that are that are being performed. Once you've identified those primitive set of actions and recognized this general abstraction of match plus action, then it, it's really taught us, I think taught the community as a whole, we've all collectively learned that there is now a computational model that fits very well for designing these programmable engines. Once you've once you figure those out, mm. then it just remains to sort of design the the programming uh, engine itself. And there are a bunch of different ways to do this. And and hopefully over the next few years we'll see a variety of different approaches uh, mm. emerge. And really that's what kind of motivated the the search for a language to express the behavior. That's really mm. how P, how P4 came about it was the recognition that this was likely to happen. And if we ended up with 25 different languages, then we'd all be super confused because then we'd have to learn all these different languages in order to express the behavior that we wanted. So, you know, a group of us kind of got together from Intel and Google and a few universities to try and think about how we could express it in a common way. So you'd learn it once, express the behavior you wanted, and then potentially compile it to a number of different programmable devices. So P4 is a language that happens inside the operating system or inside the switch function itself, whether it's software, virtual, hardware. I am somebody who's writing an operating system. Maybe I've got and I want to modify this packet format. So I, maybe I want to inject an MPLS tag. I, you've defined the P4 language to create a standardized way to write packet rewriting or packet 
munging, I would call it. Mm -hmm. If you're purchasing networking equipment uh, for an you know for an enterprise network, then the chances are, for the next few years, you won't see any difference. This won't actually be a language that's available to to to, to you in order to change the behavior of the box. This is really making life easier for the people that build the boxes. You know, want to be able to add new features, uh, to change and upgrade features in the field without having to churn the hardware, and um, so it gives them a means to enhance and stretch the processing of a particular particular box and adapt it as new ideas come along mm-hmm. and perhaps perhaps provide different profiles to different customers so to people who are who are actually purchasing uh, purchasing equipment you know in the first instance this will just improve the box rather than having to change the nature of what they do every day mm-hmm. however over time my guess is that uh, but that the, the equipment vendors will, will figure out ways to expose that programmability to the end user to allow them to make changes for example to get greater visibility into what the network is doing mm-hmm. to be able to make small changes of, of, of their own I think it'll take a few years before that plays out we'll see those ideas uh, come out in the big data centers to start with, where uh, large teams of software programmers can, you know, can experiment with new ideas at scale. I guess the disaggregation that we've seen in networking now, where we've got HP's OpenSwitch, which is the open source operating system. You've got Dell's OS X, which is an open source operating system. You've got IP Fusion with their operating system. And, you know, you don't have to choose an operating system that's bound to the hardware. I guess those, and as open source projects, they could begin to expose the P4 APIs in the operating system as soon as they get the opportunity someone writes that code i guess oh you're absolutely right this is a very exciting time Mm. for networking and a time of uh, sort of very interesting change you know just the other day i was kind of trying to try to list that same set of uh, switch operating systems you know i could come up with eight or nine that seem to be becoming available either open source or in a disaggregated fashion this is super exciting it's also it also potentially quite confusing because uh you know it's it's it shows that there's great interest and great engineering effort behind this disaggregation. But probably we're going to see you know people gathering around a smaller subset of those is you know it's too early to tell which ones will be the more popular ones mm. and uh, we probably need to see a little bit of consolidation of those open source uh, those, those open source operating systems but they are the key they are the key pieces to sort of enabling that disaggregation that you mentioned mm. and um, when someone is connecting that operating system to a switch whether that's an ASIC or a software switch that sits underneath yes they might tailor the behavior of that switch by writing a P4 program mm. to determine the API and determine the, the behavior of that switch that's operating below it. That's right. So one of the things that strikes me is that P4 in the operating system, so if I was Dell or IP Fusion or Cumulus, I could start to, like Broadcom today is about 90% of silicon inside of switches. Right, So if you're not using custom silicon, but there are plenty of other vendors who are making silicon. There's Vitesse, you've got Fulcrum, uh, you've got Marvell, you know, all those people are making Ethernet silicon, but they're not really getting a look in to enter the switching market because everybody's writing to the Broadcom silicon APIs. With P4, theoretically, these operating systems could run with any forwarding ASIC? You know, the original goal was to bring the same degree of programmability that we're seeing SDN bring in the control plane mm. to the forwarding plane. And, you know, my, my guess is that within the next five to ten years, 
every switching ASIC, every switching silicon that we, we see in every switch will be highly programmable. And uh, whether it's from you know existing switch chip vendors, from existing uh, networking equipment manufacturers, or ones that we you know that we don't, that we haven't seen yet, you know all of those I think in the future will be will be highly programmable because. When you're faced with the the opportunity or the option to program the way the behavior of a network, most people are showing they will opt for the more programmable version. That's what's mm. that's what's driving disaggregation. That's what's driving uh, SDN and NFE. It's that desire to program the behavior of a network, and this is simply extending that. You know, it's a sort of a natural next step, which is to extend that downward to the to the wire. Mm. I mean, if you stop and think about it, what does a network do? It, it a network is is transferring packets from one location to another. It, it isn't doing an awful lot. Yet when you write a program today in a switch operating system or even the SDN applications that would sit, sit above that operating system, you're not really changing the behavior of the underlying packets. What you're doing is writing code that runs on a CPU next to the switching device. Um, you know, so it's a kind of a natural next progression that we will see that that customization and that ability to modify the behavior actually extending to the packets themselves. So let's talk a little bit about P4.org. So P4.org is the community that you've built around P4 to date. That's right. So P4.org is the organization and the website, for that matter, that uh, that tells us um, you know how how P4 is is structured. So P4 is a, it's a independent organization that was set up by a group of people that were interested in in helping sort of proliferate the language and help its continued development. It has it's structured as you would expect for any sort of uh, nonprofit organization like this. You'll find on that on that website a set of code, the language specification itself that tells you the current you know instance and version of the language and then a number of open source tools like um, compilers and applications written in p4 to let people get started you can do stuff in mininet i see that's right so you yeah. could write a program in p4 for example you could say uh, you could take an existing uh, P4 program. There's a there's a nice one there called Switch.P4, which mm-hmm. is a an example of a you know, layer two, layer three type switch that you would see in a data center or an enterprise network. Mm-hmm. And you could either run it in a network, a mini net network, simulate, emulate its behavior, sort of poke at it, prod it, uh, try different try try different types of uh, packet format. But if you then wanted to extend that behavior, you could modify the P4 program, recompile it using the compilers that are there and then run a network with that different packet format. So if you were you were interested in introducing some new behavior into your network, you could uh, sort of you could try that out in that environment first. The nice thing is it's all open source, it's all Apache 2.0 licensed, so it's very permissive, anybody can use it, anybody can extend it. And the nice thing about these communities is that uh, once people start you know, getting excited by the things that they could do, they start contributing things back, fixing code, making improvements, and so we're seeing uh, quite a lot of people do that. There's there's mm. forty or forty or so organisations that are yeah, that are participating. I was just going right to ask now. that: how many people are standing up and saluting the figurative IBM flagpole? You know how IBM always says, "Let's run that up the flagpole and see who salutes." <laughs> how many? <laughs> you know, have you got a bunch of friends? Is it just you, or is it you know? 
Yeah, it's just me and a couple of friends. <laughs> uh, no, no, we're, uh, you know, there's a number of ways, the number of metrics for this. One is um, the workshops that we've been holding. Uh, we're just about to run the third workshop in May. Uh, and, you know, the last one in November, we had 200 people show up for. Right. There were about 12 or 15 different demos of working P4 applications from a number of different universities and companies. And um, so there's a, there's a fairly active community. You know, it's, it's early adopters at this stage, people mm-hmm. that are experimenting and prototyping you know this is early days for for p4 and you know and if you think about it right now there are a relatively small community of people anyway who are defining the forwarding behavior for networks there are the people who are in big data center companies mm-hmm. there are people who are in uh, networking equipment vendors and they're mostly the people that are that are taking part there are a number of people from universities my own students students from other universities who mm-hmm. are interested in trying out their ideas and putting them into the forwarding plane but over time that's growing to a slightly broader community people from financial companies, people from, from telco operators who are taking part. Because they're sort of thinking about how this allows them to change and modify the behavior of their network in the future. Yeah, it's the flexibility that really appeals to me is this idea of making a networking device be more than just what I bought it for so I could eke a bit more out of it. So I've always had to just buy a switch and then a router and then, a, you know, when the switch runs out of functionality, I, I have to throw it away. So this ability, at, at, you know, is still going to be, the forwarding plane is still going to have hard limits. At some level, there's always going to be TCAM. You know, there's only so much stuff that can be stored in TCAM. There's only so much forwarding performance that can be gotten or so many modifications that can be made to a packet as it moves through the pipeline, I guess. But, you know, that that's what you're working on now is working out how to make those work in real life, I assume. Yeah, so there was a good story that uh, someone from Wall Street was telling me recently. You know, they have a they run a big big data center for financial transactions, and and of course, like any network, occasionally things go wrong. And when things go wrong, they can't really tell: is it the compute, is it the VM or container that's running on on, on top of the server, is it the network that's screwed up? Uh, and so they get together the people from the compute side, the storage side, and the networking. They put them all into a room and say, "Okay, let's figure this out." And uh, uh, the compute people show up with huge amounts of logs and they've done experiments. They're trying to reproduce the error and uh, they've got some ideas on what's going wrong. The storage people can do the same. And the poor networking folks in the room, all they've got is ping and trace route. Right? They really have very <laughs> few tools available to Oh, and them. syslogs. Tons oh, maybe of syslogs. You know, maybe if you're lucky, too. you've got some syslogs. Yeah. If your device hasn't no. crashed producing them. Yeah. Now, if you think about what the compute and storage folks have done, they've gone and made modifications to the to the system in somehow. They're, they're either looking at counters, looking at things that represent the behavior of the system, or they've gone in and condu- added their own probes, added their own programs to, to hmm. uh, stimulate the system in some way. The networking folks have very few tools like that available to them. Okay. And, um, and so your natural thing is to arm them with the ability to change the behavior, either to send probes of their own design. And of course, you can't predict what these will be in advance at the time that you design the system, because you can never predict all the ways in which these things go wrong. Adding programmability means that at the time that you're in that horrible vortex of trying to get the damn system to work, where all the pressure is on you, if you're the guy that can't actually offer any evidence, then you immediately become the (laughs) the prime (laughs) suspect for the investigation, (laughs) and all eyes are on you. You say, well, I can't really tell you what's going on. Yeah, but it's not the network. It's not the network. It's It's not. Oh, I promise you, it's not that one. We've all heard these stories and been in that situation ourselves, right? But if you can turn around and say, here is some evidence 
that the real cause is this rogue application that's sitting out on a server over there. And I can see that behavior in the network. For example, there is a queue building up on a congested link, and there are five flows going through it. And I can tell you that this is the flow that's causing the problem, and it's this UDP flow that's coming from that server over there that's out of control. Well, now you've got some, you know, you can turn it into a dialogue. So how would P4 handle that? I've got a congested interface. The buffer is, you know, uh, got some sort of microburst happening. How would I use P4 to be able to get that telemetry data to say that's where my problem is? One of the applications that uh, is proving very popular with P4 right now is something called INT, in-network telemetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's actually on the p4.org website, you can see int.p4, which is a program which tells the switch how to respond to particular probes. And in this environment, a a packet might carry a regular data traffic might carry with it a little probe that says, hey, give me this information about the current status of the, the switch. Uh, tell me the queue occupancy, the delay, the the rule that I matched on, the version of that rule, etc. All the kind of information that you would like to extract from the actual data packets. Once you've got that, then you don't want that to be there on all the time with every packet that's flowing through the network. You want to be able to choose which ones you use, add new ones, modify the modify the ones that you're, that you're using so that when something happens, you can go and quickly and say, I'd like to switch on these probes, this this visibility into the into the forwarding state of the network. So for example, in your example in, in your example of the, the microburst that's taking place, I might say Tell me whenever the queue occupancy exceeds a certain amount, give me the last five packets that led up to that particular mm-hmm. instance so I can examine them, hand them off to a server somewhere that can then mm-hmm. inspect and tell me what's going wrong. And if I was to t- say in advance exactly what probes should be there, I would get it wrong because I mm. don't know the particular problems that well, you're Well, applications would change, networking would change. Today exactly. we do. I mean, I'm thinking of a system in an ECMP network where I don't know what path. I could have a you know an ECMP spine which is 12 wide, and I don't know which way the packets are going. Now, hopefully, all the packets from a given flow should flow in a single path, but there's no guarantee that that's actually going to happen. Um, I'm thinking of an application where a packet is received by a switch, and at the egress port, I actually inject a tag into the IP that says, I went through this switch, I went out this port, and this was the buffer, and this was the CPU, you know, find some critical data about the state of the switch, and inject that into a tag. Now, the MPLS tag and the IPPAT tags would all, you know, all that IP headers would all still be there, but now the packet would be carrying extra data about where it went in the network, and I could then start to trace its way through the network. Now, the application which receives that, I might write into my application something like, oh, I see it went through this path. Oh, the path switched. Is that practical? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, if you talk to folks in from compute and storage, they're a little bit surprised that we can't do that already. They seem kind of natural things to be able to do in our networks. Yeah. It's, it's kind of surprising that we've managed to last this long without this kind of capability built into the network. And uh, so, you know, I think that they're inevitable. The, the question is, will they be fixed? and mm. inflexible, or will they be programmable and, and yeah. so that they could evolve as we learn more about what it takes to make these yeah, networks work? My take is that they'll be programmable because it'll allow people just to you know, figure out how to tune the things that they're looking for depending mm. on the things that are going wrong. Yes. Well, the switching market's not being driven by the... I have this common thing about the enterprise IT market is not driving innovation or driving change right now. It's the cloud providers which are driving a lot of the change in enterprise IT, if it's not the smartphone, of course, but that's a different 
you know, most networking advances are being done with smartphones and mobile phones. But I'm sort of thinking of what Cisco is promoting around with its network services headers and the idea of having this massive tag that carries a whole lot of metadata about application state, server and stuff like that. If I could start to build my own version of that, then I can build my own telemetry system based around that and actually a whole analytics system on in the same way. I guess I could also build my own... Um, you know, S-Flow, NetFlow, I could start to use P4 to write my own version of flow data too. Yeah, I mean, what you're really getting at here is, um, you know, the importance uh, in in the sort of new big networks, the importance of standards and the importance mm. of doing of the one size fits all. You know, in the past, it was very important to have standards so that we could be sure that networking equipment would all interoperate with, e- you know, with each other because we were often communicating with people across administrative boundaries. Mm. But now there are very large networks you know, typically in large data centers or in large corporations that are uh, where, where, the, where a significant amount of the traffic is staying inside that corporation. So why do they need to follow a standard? Uh, it's much less important than it, than it used to be. So if they want to be able to express behaviors, carry large tags, be able to carry small programs, mm. uh, you know, that the, the meet their individual needs, not only can they make their network work better, they can make their network work better than their competitors. Mm. So now they have the ability to actually differentiate and compete mm. by modifying and improving the network uh, over how it behaved before. And for many of these folks, now the network is part of their business. So if you're a big cloud provider, it is an important part of how you deliver a service and, yeah. and, and deliver a business to customers. So it's not a cost. The network right. so often is just a cost. It's a pain. Exactly. I only have and to that- have it. And But if you're a cloud company, your network is your raison d'etre. It's your yeah. purpose. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, one of the advantages that I've heard that uh, one of the reasons I've heard that a lot of folks are interested in the sort of P4 and the ability to change the behavior of their network is they can now define how their network operates themselves and they don't have to tell anybody else. They can hold <laughs> that program for yeah. themselves yeah. and they say, this is the thing that differentiates my cloud from my competitor's cloud. Yeah. And I don't have to tell my my ASIC vendor or or or, or put it out into an open source switch yeah. because um, if I do that, it's going to show up everywhere else, and I've lost my advantage. So it actually provides an ability for people to compete and differentiate a little bit more effectively. Part of me goes, "Ooh, that's bad," and another part of me says that flexibility does have knock-on effects in other part of the industry too. Once they get the flexibility to write their own programs that allows other operating systems and other vendors to start producing similar advances. So we could actually see differentiation in the operating systems as vendors race to implement functional enhancements. I think that's right. You're going to see uh, switches operate and operating systems start to add more features that are in support of particular parts of the industry. And um, so in industries where people need to chain a number of services together, maybe in the financial industry, then um, you'll start to see things in the forwarding plane to help people do that better. People who want to do segment routing. So, you know, a lot of interest in segment routing right now. You don't have to think that it's the best thing or the worst thing. You can choose and you could even try and implement something that was your own modified version of it that suits your own network. If you want to operate in a standards way, then clearly you need to do the same as other people. Well, now P4 provides you with a way to specify, unambiguously specify the forwarding behavior as part of that standard. So at our last workshop, AT&T did a very nice um, presentation about the use of P4 to unambiguously specify a forwarding behavior for a new feature that they wanted. They went as far as to say, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if standard specifications in the IT 
ETF and IEEE if they included the P4 description of the foreign mm, behavior mm. to go along with it. Because right now they're written in English. And um, the problem with that is that, you know, different people will interpret that different ways. And then you end up with this sort of big battle of, you know, well, you know, my version of my implementation of the standard is better than yours because I'm a larger company or because I've been doing this for years, right? And so you Yes, my BGP sort of, code's got magic in it, don't you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what you'd really like is an unambiguous representation that everybody can follow. And if it's different from the, that representation, you'll be able to show it because it compiles differently. And so this actually provides, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that really excites me about what you just said is I also believe that if you're going to promote a standard in the IETF today, you should be able to test it. So that is, there should be a testing suite supplied as part of the the RFC to say, I should be able to run this software to test that features in my code. Like BGP today has got so many RFCs and so many possible features that it's impossible to know which BGP you're running. They're all theoretically running BGP v4 or, you know, whatever it is. But with all of the different extensions, you don't know what you're getting anymore with BGP. Yeah, I mean, if you take a step back with all of this change towards software def definition of the way that programs work with, you know, SDN and NFE, et cetera, you know, it's opening up the door to bringing in many, many years of expertise and experience with computer systems to bring the ideas from software development, software verification, software testing, mm -hmm. provable behavior, provable correctness into networking. So right now, you can, you can see how people are developing networks instead of embedded firmware code uh, written on old multitasking executives. They're actually now writing control plane software using modern coding practices on modern mm. servers. In the forwarding plane, I think we'll start to see the same thing. It's very, very important that the forwarding plane behaves in the way that you anticipated and expected when you were originally writing yeah. the before program to describe <laughs> its behavior. Yeah, the if internet's always going to yeah, so the internet's always going to be the internet because everybody has to agree on the lowest common denominator. It's never going to advance very fast because getting the, an, an organism of, you know, a distributed computing platform of that size to agree, standards are still standards. But my problem is that I no longer know which, which features of BGP my neighbor speaks. And so I, I have no way of testing that or, or, or validating that. What we're going to see is there will be many tools that will be developed by the open source community, industry, the research community, to be able to test and validate equivalents of P4 programs. I think that is absolutely for sure. As soon as you've got an unambiguous specification, mm. then people will figure out ways to say, is this implementation equivalent to this implementation? Yeah. Uh, is this version the same as this version over here? Yeah. That on its own will be a you know a great value and a great service to the the standardization effort. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. when you look at a a very widely used standard like BGP, if you think about it, BGP really hasn't changed very much in the last ten or fifteen years. Mm -hmm. You could say that's because it's perfect and needs no change, or because it's been almost impossible to change it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I I would argue that the latter is true. Mm -hmm. That we we can see many. Uh, many um, problems with it that we would like to fix, but it's very hard to get agreement on how to do that. Mm. If you've got a means to change the forwarding, then you can you can let people experiment with peering, perhaps even at a different layer using a different mechanism. They can do that pairwise to start with, mm. and then on their boundary communicate using BGP to everybody else. So you could start to yeah. yeah, you could start. You to could create islands of agreement. 
That's you right. know, you could start to define a protocol between two ASs. So if somebody like, I don't know, the two biggest carriers in the US, like Level 3 and Verizon, agreed to peer using a new protocol, then it could just continue to extend out over time. If, if right. you had a programmable forwarding plane, you could make do with whatever you needed to do there. You could overcome the challenge. That's right. What about things like application gateways and load balancing? Is are we actually going to see load balancing defined in this? Like we're rewriting packets. Once you're rewriting packets, you're in the load balancing world. And there's, you know, application delivery controllers are still arcane and weird. Is P4 up for that too? P4 just gives you a way to describe a forwarding behavior, right? Yeah. So at, at, at some level, it can exp, it can describe anything that you would want to do that can be expressed in terms of a forwarding behavior. Now, let's let, let's take the example of load balancing. I think it's a great example. In fact, this has been a hobby horse of mine for a while. <laughs> if you think about it, what is a load balancer? A load balancer is doing intelligent routing. A packet comes in, it's trying to decide where to send it next. Now, when it's a load balancer, it has to take in more information than simply the information in the header of the packet. Which mm -hmm. server am I sending it to, perhaps? What is the load on that server? Is the server, server even switched on right now? So there's a little bit more state and information that needs to maintain. But essentially, a load balancer is just doing uh, intelligent routing. We've been demonstrating for quite some time now in, in research papers from, from my group and from other groups that really these many of these functions can simply be folded into the plumbing, which is mm. the you know the regular network uh, the network forwarding. Because essentially all you're doing is looking at a header, deciding where it goes next based mm. on some state that you're holding. And the question is, where does that state come from and what happens if the servers you know go away or fail, etc. Yeah. So it could be but, an app on the switch. So exactly. if you had some sort of, you know, if you've got an x86 CPU and a switch, it could be a Python script or a Go script just checking service state and then loading a P4 script to say, do this to this packet. I think that's exactly the kind of application that people will use P4 to experiment with. Mm -hmm. They may not be able to do all the full glorious features of a specialized load balancer today, mm -hmm. but frankly, most people are not using all of those features. So mm -hmm. if there is a subset that they're using simply forwarding to the least congested server right now, mm -hmm. then this is something that you could very re readily fold into the, into the plumbing. And uh, so I think that's the sort of thing people will experiment with. And there will be other applications and other things that we think of as belonging in separate middle boxes mm. that people will experiment with, including ones we've never even thought of yet. Because once you've got <laughs> that ability to program, yeah. then people will figure out interesting things to do with it. Who would have thought when people designed GPUs and, and, and CUDA yeah. that you'd be using it for machine learning and for a, you know self-driving vehicles and things like this? You know, People will find interesting new applications once they've got a language. And a, yeah, you're right. Once we yeah. had GPUs, now we use them for Bitcoin mining as much as we do for oil surveys. That's right. Uh, and that's as much the GPU itself as mm -hmm. the language, the CUDA language and you know uh, and the graphics languages that have been that, that people are using. It's as much about those languages as it is about the underlying forwarding plan. So yep. long as that language is rich enough, then you can use it to do many, many things. Seeing as we're pushing out metaphors, um, the when we were talking about uh, network telemetry, I was minded of D-Trace in the Linux kernel. It used to be impossible to know what was happening in the Linux kernel until they put the D-Trace in. And now you can actually watch the machine level functions as an app runs and start to troubleshoot what's happening in the lint. Like you got this massive telemetry system and it took years for it to come in. But once it was in, it was just unlocked a whole lot of performance problems inside of Linux. It's a similar sort of problem to my mind. Yeah, it's always struck me that we, we that given how much we depend on the network, how rudimentary are the tools and the visibility that we have into its operation. It's, you know, not, for example, it's a horror show. 
It's, yeah, a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's appalling that we've been, I mean, quite honestly, it's, been, it's appalling that we've been stuck with this 40-year-old ideas about how to operate a network, banging away on the C- CLI, ping and trace route as the only viable tools, and we ask every single operator to understand these protocols, OSPF, BGP, ISIS. They have to know them intimately to, as a debugging tool because they have no other way. You know, they have to basically dump the data, you know, show IPO, SPF database. They have to dump the database and then read the rabbit bones on the table to be able to work out what's going wrong. You know, no SQL admin is doing that type of stuff. They're all doing grown up stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, re- it really is. I agree. It's totally appalling. It's mm-hmm. kind of pathetic that when we depend so much on the network that we have so so little visibility into it. I always like to say it's uh, it's the yo-yo mar of networking. So what's yo-yo mar got to do with those? Well, it's because you're you're on your own, mate. And that's essentially the, the 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 problem we're faced with. You know, the the, the folks that build switching silicon mm. and the people that build networking equipment generally are not the people that run big networks. Yes, and so they can't possibly know all of the visibility that you need, all of the knobs and switches that you need, in order to be able to get the behavior that you need out of the network. So it's not surprising that the equipment doesn't come with the the the, the kind of capabilities that you would need. And we, you know, we're seeing that improve now with software-defined networking in, in the broadest sense, with the emergence of the ability to more customize your, customize your network. People who operate and run big networks are starting to change that behavior themselves or commissioning mm. others or buying software from a third party that allows them to do that. Right. And, uh, you know, they can do that to some extent right now. But if you want to have visibility into the queues in your network that are causing congestion, you, you just don't have that visibility. I think that things like P4 and programmable forwarding planes will bring that about over the next few years. And I think it'll be commonplace. And we'll look back and say, what were we thinking of? <laughs> to think that we could run these big systems without that kind of visibility in it's, the past. In part, it's a testimony to how well we've done with the products that we've got. We haven't needed, we haven't been driven to implement those tools. So in a sense, the technology that was built, you know, 20, 30 years ago has been extremely tolerant and robust to the point where advanced diagnostics weren't needed. But that's no longer true. I think the world has changed and we need to have those. As we get close to the end of the show, uh, what I wanted to do is start talking to you about, you said earlier that this concept of match action and the isolation of the control plane and the forwarding plane, that sounds a lot like OpenFlow, like where we were with OpenFlow a few years ago. Is there some sort of linkage between then and now? You know, OpenFlow came about through a frustration that I think many of us felt that uh, you couldn't modify the behavior of a network. And, you know, that led to the separation of the control plane from the forwarding plane and the desire for a means to tell the forwarding plane what to do. OpenFlow, though, had to deal with a th- the, the assumption and the reality of fixed underlying forwarding planes. So if you look at what OpenFlow does, is it provides you with a nice API for telling a fixed pipeline how to populate its tables. And, um, you know, when we were originally thinking about OpenFlow, I think we had rather hoped that the forwarding plane would be a bit more flexible. But, you know, when you look at it, all of the forwarding planes that are widely used are very fixed in nature. And so you had to deal with something that has fixed formats. And I think today, something like 45 different headers that are specified in the OpenFlow standard. Mm. Now, wouldn't it be nice if instead of the forwarding plane bottoms up telling you what it does and then you having to live with it, wouldn't it be better if you could say to the forwarding plane, hey, here are the headers I'd like you to recognize. 
this is how I'd like you to process those headers. I'd like to match on these three fields. I'd like mm. you to decrement this value under my control so that I can decide that. And so now we'd be moving to a top-down. If mm. you think about it, that's really what programmability is all about. Instead mm. of a data sheet telling you in a fixed way what it does, you're telling the forwarding plane, this is the behavior that I'd like you to have. So really, you, in, in, in the world of P4, OpenFlow is a program. So mm -hmm. in fact, there exists already an openflow.p4, which tells a switch to behave like an openflow switch. But now you could have something which is, uh, which, which is enhanced beyond that. Yeah. But for me, it was that realization that openflow defined match action. If I match this, then I'm going to take an action. And that's fundamentally what every network device does in reality. So a, a frame or a packet comes in, I match it against something in a table, I apply an action. The action might be forwarded out this port, rewrite some part of it and then forward it out the port, you know, change the IP address in the header if I'm load balancing and then forward it out a port. But it's that match action, which is kind of like an atomic unit of networking. That's right. You know, every every switch, gateway, firewall, they're, 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 and, and NAT device and L2, L3, they're all they're all implemented and, and actually using this match action paradigm. So it's mm. just simply an, a, an observation of the way in which all of these pipelines are built. That's right. Yeah. And if you just turn, turn instead of them being fixed into something that's being programmable, that allows a sequence of match action steps to be done in a programmable way, then that's what P4 is all about. And of course, now that SDN has created the abstraction of control plane from forwarding plane, P4 can happen. It seems to me that, you know, we've had this transition happening over the last four or five years and now it's possible to say oh but i could rewrite the packets dynamically because sdn slash openflow has created that pathway opened up that piece of the market yeah i think it's opened up our minds mm. it has opened up our minds to this possibility actually i think the p4 will will find use uh, both in those who have been early adopters and aggressive users of sdn and the separation of control and forwarding plane and it will find a big home in people that don't see it that way people mm. who build systems for which they just want greater flexibility greater mm. greater feature velocity and the ability to change and improve the behavior so i think that we'll see it sort of uh, find its way into many many different types of, of network systems Fantastic. Nick McEwan, thank you so much for appearing on the Packet Pushes today. Please tell people on the internet where they can find you. You can find me at, at my uh, Stanford website at www.stanford.edu slash Nick McEwan. You can also find information about P4 at p4.org, O-R-G. There you'll find some information about the upcoming workshop. We're holding a workshop on May 24th at Stanford University. We're expecting a couple of hundred people here. We've got a great set of speakers and about 15 demos we can learn lots about before there'll be a there'll also be a tutorial on may 23rd at stanford to give an introduction and an overview of what p4 is all about and even if you can't make that one i'm sure you've got more planned in the in the months ahead yeah we're planning a annual workshop as well as tutorials and demos on a rolling basis so i think you're going to see lots of lots of activity at p4.org Thanks. And of course, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com, on the Twitter is at etherealmind, and also on Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., etc. Thanks for listening to the Packet Pushes today. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter is at packetpushes. Find us on LinkedIn. Like us on the Facebook and rate us on the iTunes. It really, really does help us get more followers and we could use some of that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.